It was so out of the blue. And I was thinking, who would have done this? It shattered my world. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. This week is our final interview of the season, and boy, is it a good one. This was an incredible five-hour conversation, and I whittled it down to two and a half hours, so it may take some time to listen to it, but it's definitely worth the listen. If you have mental illness or know of people with mental illness, this episode will help you understand it so much better. This is a story of courage, never giving up, betrayal, forgiveness, even a few of a mother's worst fears involved. So without further ado, this is Wendy's story. My name is Wendy Cordell. I grew up in Huntington Beach, California, and then I went to Brigham Young University where I majored in home economics education. So I taught family consumer sciences in Utah for six years after I graduated. And I met and married my husband when I was 27. In our church culture, getting married at 27 seems quite old. She had planned to go to BYU and graduate with her MRS degree, AKA get married and become a Mrs. That obviously didn't happen. So. She filled her time with school, then teaching jobs and friends. Every now and again, being single felt difficult. Being single definitely was a challenge. I think by the time I had been teaching a few years, and by the time I had had like, oh my goodness, my first like real heartbreak that literally took my breath away because it was so painful. Those were times when it would hurt the most when you'd see potential and then it would end. And then it's like, oh, because it wasn't just that relationship that was ending, it was all the hopes and dreams that hung on it too. So yeah, and then I remember finally being able to express, like I have people that I share my life with, but I don't have one person that I share like, all the things with. Yeah. And that's a little lonely. Aw. Obviously, she got married and has kids. But how did we get there? Wendy found herself in a job teaching at an alternative school with troubled youth, something she would have never chosen to do, but ended up loving it. When she was 26, she had that devastating breakup she was talking about. She knew if she was going to be in a serious relationship again, she needed it to be the one. Q, the love story. There was a character named Oliver who was making the rounds around Provo. Really unique guy. He was on this kick setting people up, being matchmaker, right? Not sure I was a super fan of his methods. But one day he came over to our apartment and said, I have a guy I want to set you girls up with. And... I don't know if you caught that, but that's a guy, one guy that he wanted to set me and my roommates, all four of us up with. He 
is from Germany. And every time, anytime he did anything that someone was like, what? He would just blame it on the cultural difference. Whether or not, like, it had anything to do with culture anywhere. He was like, oh, sorry. Is that how they do things here? Anyway, two of my roommates immediately were like, no way. They bounced. They're like, we do not want any part of this. And two of us were like, whatever, if you want to bring them over, we'll hang out and say, hey, you know. But we weren't agreeing to like some formal (laughs) weird setup of one man to multiple women. So they arranged to come over and play a board game one night. And I'm not sure I was like looking forward to it, but I wasn't not looking forward to it. But I had had a long day, like school day got out like an hour or two short, but those are the days that I was working a shift at the temple after work, after school. So it's like nine o'clock at night. I've been working for like 14 hours at this point, but they come over and I meet Abram and we start talking right away. We hit it off and I told him I was a teacher and he's like, oh, my mom's a teacher. And uh, we just it just had an easy time chatting about whatever. And so my interest was piqued and we sit down to play Monopoly, which I love board games and I hate Monopoly. So <laughs> can't say I was excited about that. Who picked Monopoly? Oh, Oliver did. Oliver. Because he's German. During the game, he was like, I'm the world champion of Monopoly. And we're like, what? Like, I think it's some online. I don't even know if there's any truth to that statement, but it was pretty amazingly weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, who are you? Who liked Monopoly for the first two hours? So, yeah, I'm super competitive, always have been, always will be. And especially like after a long day or stress, I love putting my emotion into the game and just like take it out on the game, right? It's not personal. It's just competition. It's just the board game. So I definitely was getting a little feisty, especially because shortly after we got into the game, Abram stopped making eye contact with me. And so I was like, great. I don't know what happened, but he's not interested, obviously, because he won't even look at me. And now I'm stuck playing this game that I hate and I'm losing. So, and my roommate starts making excuses for me. Like, Wendy's really nice when she's not playing games. (laughs) So... (laughs) Anyways. But it's true. Is that what you were going to say? I thought I was kind of nice enough to play games with. But yeah, no, it definitely didn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. (laughs) So Oliver's trying to pass me Monopoly money and I'm super big on the rules. So I'm just like, you're making it worse. And oh my goodness. Then after the game. So my roommate that's there and Abram. One of Abram's, well, I guess it wasn't a mission companion, but like someone he knew from his mission was really good friends with my roommate. And so they're like comparing nodes and 
talking about like maybe all of them getting together. So then they're talking schedules and I'm like, I've got to save face. Like, <laughs> get me out of here. And so there were some neighbors over, some guys hanging out at the apartment by that time. And one of them was sitting on the love sack and I didn't ever go hang out with these guys or like talk to them, whatever. Like, I went and sat on the love sack. I made myself <laughs> like perfectly comfy over there. I'm like, I need to lick my wounds. So hello, other boy. So yeah, that was it. Called my brother afterwards crying. I'm never going to get married. <laughs> Nobody can even handle me being competitive in a board game. What was that? <laughs> yeah. So that was rough. And then Oliver, like a week or two later, he called me super late at night and woke me up. And he's like, oh, sorry. It's that. <laughs> he blamed that on the culture. Like, oh, do you not do that here? <laughs> In America? In America? <laughs> like, whatever. Anyway, when he said that Abram wanted my phone number, I totally thought he was lying. Because I wouldn't put it past him to manipulate a situation, you know like that but apparently abram did want my phone number did he ever explain to you why he didn't why he stopped making eye contact he claims that he didn't know that he did that i mean i believe him okay he wasn't intimidated by your competitiveness no he wasn't he was intrigued by the competitiveness oh is he competitive he was very sad about the love sack incident though oh You guys are mixed reading your signals. <laughs> yeah. One thing led to the next. They talked every day until they were married. Bada bing, bada boom. They were married and they all lived happily ever after. The end. Just kidding. We haven't even gotten to the story yet. Loved being married. It was kind of lonely though. We... Lonely? Yeah. That's interesting because you said being single was lonely. Interesting. Maybe this has a deeper problem that we could explore here. <laughs> Do you need help? Oh. It might be called depression. Okay, now we're getting to it. Well, we moved up to a cabin in the mountains. Being married wasn't lonely. Quitting my job to have a baby and then live in a dark cabin in a ward with like hardly any couples our age. Mm. That was lonely. Ah, now we're getting to the deep stuff. Becoming a mother can be very scary, and yes, at times, lonely. I was very committed to not having a honeymoon baby. So we waited a month, and thank God pregnant with Sam. I hate it when you first get married and everyone automatically asks, when are you going to have kids? Like, hold up. Can we just agree to get rid of that question? Like, it's none of your business. Deciding to have a child is very personal and intimate. Some people want kids, but can't. Some people may never even want kids. And some people are waiting for inspiration. In Wendy's case, that inspiration came at the temple. I remember the date. It was my sister's birthday. So I know it was August 25th. And we had gotten married July 20th. So I was praying, thinking at the temple. And then I was sitting on a couch in the waiting room and just got this really strong feeling about being a mother that this is what you were born to do. And every single time I went to the temple during that pregnancy, which 
was a lot. We had plenty of opportunity every single time that impression came. This is what you were born to do. And that's carried me through a lot, a lot over the last 15 years. Sometimes I wonder, like in telling my story, I never want to say something that my children would hear and feel like I don't love them or that they were like a burden or a problem or something because they are not, they are my life. They are my heart. I'm so grateful for every single one of my children. And being a mother is the most challenging thing I've ever done and brought a lot of hard things with it. So when you said it got difficult, when did it get difficult? It came to a head when I was pregnant. I could feel that my emotions were like nuts. And I remember telling my OB, sometimes I feel like killing people. And he laughed because it sounded funny. And I do like to deliver things in a comedic way because I am funny. (laughs) And it's really satisfying to get someone to laugh. And it also helps diffuse, you know, an embarrassing or difficult conversation. But I was not kidding. I, and I told him, I'm like, no, really, like, this is just the best way I can describe it. Like, I just feel like I'm going to kill people. And he's like, well, how often do you feel that way? Is it every day? And I was like, um, no, like, I don't know, maybe every few days, maybe, maybe a couple of times a week. I don't know. And he's like, well, let's wait until it's more like every day. And hands down, that's the worst medical advice I have ever received in my life. Ever, ever, ever. So there was an opportunity there where I was asking for help. Of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. I didn't realize what kind of help I was asking for or needing. You're hoping the medical professional would understand that and do his job? Yeah. But then, like, once you get shot down for it, it's like, okay. Very invalidating. Plus, it just, you know, I, compared to what I know now, I knew nothing about depression. Nothing about mental health. So, that just solidified to me, like, okay, it matters if it's every day, right? If it's not every day, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. which comes into play later when it's like, I'm trying to figure out, is this a problem? So after I had Sam, he's such a sweet little boy. We had a sweet time. Like there's lots of sweet, happy memories for me. And also a lot of hard, dark memories as well. But I definitely had depression. I guess I call it postpartum because it was after I had a baby, but I think of postpartum as like something that goes away and my depression has never gone away. Was that your first time like really experiencing it? It was the first time that I noticed it. So you were calling it 
postpartum at this point? Well, no, like at first I didn't know. My mom said to me one day, Wendy, I think you have postpartum depression. And I felt super defensive. Like, no, I don't, you know, and I called one of my sisters and you know, I just felt this like natural urge to defend myself. Like, I don't have that problem. That's not wrong with me. And I remember my sister telling me, I think you're doing good. You know, like you're doing good at this mothering thing. And you sounded, and she was very validating. But of course I can pick this apart now, (laughs) knowing so much more. So I let it go on until for a few months and it was just debilitating at that point. I remember like if I needed to leave the house, I had to force myself to leave the house. Like I could sit paralyzed in a chair for hours. And I remember that's the point in my life when I stopped wearing socks. (laughs) It's like, I don't know if that's a funny detail or an embarrassing detail, but I think it's important to tell the details because maybe someone else will recognize it and relate to it, Mm -hmm. you know? But I stopped wearing socks because I thought, well, if me finding a pair of clean matching socks and getting them on my feet is the thing that's going to stop me from getting out of the house, then I just need to put my shoes on and walk out of the house. And so it was like a coping strategy. Wow. But once I started having suicidal thoughts, that was scary to me. And that was a line where I knew this isn't normal and I'm not okay with this. And so that's when I went back to the doctor and explained some of what was going on and started an antidepressant. And at the time that was really hard living in Utah I don't know how the culture is there now, but I know at the time there were so many jokes about Mormon women on antidepressants and how many people in Utah Valley were on whatever medicine. And I mean, like so many jokes and there was no way I wanted to be a part of the joke. You know what I mean? But... I I knew I needed it and, you know, it was tremendously helpful and I don't remember like the details of what it changed or what it helped per se, but I remember in my mind there was like an end goal of getting off of it. Mm-hmm. A couple months before Sam turned one, Abraham graduated and changed his mind from wanting to be a teacher to getting into PR. He also wanted to move south, so to be closer to his side of the family, Thor Cordells picked up and moved to North Carolina. This was in 2008, by the way, a year as infamous as 2020. Sam turned one and started walking while we were living there with them for a few months. As far as this timeline goes, like we had moved out of my in-laws basement, whether we wanted to or not. (laughs) (laughs) That's the short 
a simple way to explain that. So we were unemployed. Abram was applying for jobs every day. He was applying to dozens of jobs. All these companies, like, what do they cut first? PR, like, why yeah. do we need PR, you know? So people were not hiring and it was just ridiculous. And then we had people saying to us, you know, if it were me, I would just go get a job at the local fast food place and then just work until I was manager. I just get a job. And my husband has epilepsy. Mm. And when we were first married, we got put on a second medicine, which actually helped him to stop having seizures regularly, grand mal seizures. So he was on two neurological medications that cost a thousand dollars. So if he were to get a job at a fast food place, he would make too much money for us to have our medications made available to him. Mm. So it was like saying, go get a job for your pride, but it will cost you money. Literally, it will cost you to go get a job. These stories uncover failing systems over and over again. It's so easy to judge and say that people are lazy and not willing to work so they can get their interns paid for. But here you see a perfect example of good, hardworking people who want to get a job to support their family. And unfortunately, the jobs available are minimum wage jobs. So therein lies the problem, making too much money to qualify for the help, but not enough money to afford life without help. There may be some people abusing the system, but I'm willing to bet that most fall under this circumstance. So I think some people thought that Abram was just sitting on the couch, not doing anything. But I was with him all day. I saw him filling out all of those applications every single day. I knew he was keeping track and it was, you know, over a hundred in the hundreds. Also, you just said your husband has epilepsy like very nonchalantly. That's like huge. It is huge. That's very huge. Yeah. When we were first married, I was pregnant and nobody knew except for me and Abram. We decided we wanted to tell people in person and we wanted to make a big deal out of it. So we didn't tell our families right away, which I would never do again. But seeing the man that you love, that you depend on, that is going to be the father of your child having a grand mal seizure next to you, like that was... Did it happen often? That only happened once since we were married. Okay. It happened twice, maybe, when we were dating, dating and engaged. And then after I saw that, I got him to a neurologist and we got him on better medication. Yeah. So as you can see, they were relocating to a new living space, unemployed, had mental and physical health concerns. And in the middle of all this, Wendy was feeling antsy and decided, this is the perfect time to get off the medication. So I get off the antidepressant during one of the like most intense situations I've had in my life up to this point. And that was a hard time. That was like the, definitely I think Abram would agree that was the hardest year of our marriage. Wendy began therapy. I feel like that's when I started learning about intrusive thoughts. 
And this was the first time I had ever seen a therapist in my life. I grew up in a home, in a culture, which I think a lot of people did. A lot of people grew up in a culture where therapy was just like a joke. It just wasn't a real option. You know, it's like, oh, lay down on the couch and tell me about your childhood. You know, just this like TV version of what therapy is not. So it wasn't something that people like did and talked about openly. And it was just, you know, therapy 101, really basic stuff and still incredibly helpful. It was interesting to me because he would be teaching me things and I'm like, I used to teach this as a teacher. I know this stuff, but then it's interesting to apply it to yourself, to have somebody else like make a connection that they can see. And anyway, but some of the most, I think probably the most impactful thing he did for me was when I would tell him about some of these things that I was thinking, for example, I would think I want to die. And he asked me, is that really what you want? And I was like, oh, well, no, that isn't really what I want. So then the question is, well, what do you want? Well, I want to be able to sit down and eat a sandwich without the baby crying. I want to be able to leave the house. I want plenty of things, but it's not to die, right? But I want to die is the intrusive thought that comes and it comes back again and again and again. And I had some pretty negative thoughts towards my husband, intrusive thoughts that came back again and again. And this feels very vulnerable, but it was good to be able to pick those things apart. I feel like I'm grateful that those aren't things that I ever said out loud to him. We had made a commitment to each other before we were married that divorce would not be a word that we used in our home regarding our relationship that we wouldn't throw that possibility around because neither of us want that to be an option. And I think a lot of times people say things they don't mean, but then once they're said, they're said, you know. So I am really grateful that even though I was thinking things that I wasn't saying them. And then I was taught to recognize those intrusive thoughts and recognize them for what they were, and then be able to stop and think, well, what is it that I do want? What is it that I do feel? And that was really critical for me. I've used that skill ever since. And I think that's something that I wish more people could recognize that simple thing. I read somewhere recently that the most common things that people have intrusive thoughts about are hurting themselves or other people about sexual deviance and about religion. Wow. That's it. That's the three top. Think about the people you know that have crappy lives right now. Yeah. 
Is it possible that they could be dealing with intrusive thoughts and not even know it? Is it possible that people's testimonies have gotten undermined because they've had thoughts pop into their head because of their depression or OCD or anxiety and they didn't even know it? And they didn't stop to think, is this true? Do I really believe that? Is that really what I want? They take their thoughts as facts. Right. Wow. This is huge for me. I love the lessons I learned from being allowed into so many heads. Are you challenging your thoughts? Are you talking back to your mind more than it talks to you? Hmm. Food for thought. Okay, moving right along. Wendy got pregnant with baby number two. I get pregnant with a girl and almost immediately, like, it resolves everything. My depression is gone. Whoa. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like myself again. I feel like I'm the person that Abram dated and married and I'm back. And this is amazing. And to me, that was very powerful because it taught me that what was going on with me was definitely a chemical thing in my body that was actually happening. This was not just me being moody or me being weak or me imagining something wrong. It was like something with my body and how my body was functioning that caused my depression and then fixed my depression. Not far into the pregnancy, maybe halfway into the pregnancy, the depressions definitely started coming back. And then it came back intense enough that I was on antidepressants before the baby came. I've been on antidepressants ever since. But in making the decision to go on antidepressants the second time, that was like gut-wrenching. That was super hard. I feel like I was praying and not really getting an answer, which side note, I also think one thing I love to be on a soapbox about is that depression can cause you to not be able to feel the spirit. Did you know that? Your mental health affects your ability to feel the Holy Ghost. I didn't know that, but I mean, that resonates for sure. When I was little, I was taught you were baptized, you're given the Holy Ghost. When you sin, the Holy Ghost goes away. Mm -hmm. When you repent, the Holy Ghost comes back. So here I am as an adult and it's like the Holy Ghost went somewhere. <laughs> like I'm trying, I'm doing all the things. Why am I not feeling it? And so the assumption is I sinned. I did something wrong. Like, how do I fix this? And then, oh my goodness, like what a terrible place that can put you in when you're already in a terrible place. I'm not enough. Then, I'm not worthy of it. I'm all of the adversaries' voices that want to make you feel like yeah, garbage. Yeah. To get you away from the spirit further. Mm -hmm. and, and then thoughts like, wouldn't it be so fun to just like run away and just sleep with someone random? Like- that's an intrusive thought is where these people go and their minds is like yes. these crazy thoughts of just doing things that are not what you really want to do. Mm -hmm. Our mental and physical health can affect our ability to feel the spirit. Oh, yes. I've heard that. And it's like, whoa, slow down. Stop. Can we talk about this for a second? 
Because we didn't remember back in primary, like we didn't talk about that. It was just you sin. That was the choice. Or you like or you go, go somewhere. somewhere where the spirit can't go. Exactly. Which I've also disproven for myself. Mm-hmm. I could totally go karaoke at a bar and still have the spirit with me because the spirit's in me, not in the building that it's in. Just saying. <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so that's something I feel really strongly about. So now they have two kids and Abram decided he wasn't going to go into HR and went back to school. So they moved further south to South Carolina. He got his degree in a year and a half and the little family moved again to Mississippi. They had baby number three there. Life circumstances moved this little family all over from Nebraska back to North Carolina, and eventually they settled for a while in Iowa. When we moved to Iowa, we moved to a town with 500 people surrounded by cornfields. (laughs) And it was amazing. Like, I loved it. It was such an adventure. It was so completely different from the whole rest of my life. You know, the kind of town where your kids only need one permission slip for the entire school year, and those field trips being a walk to the bank down the street. Wendy and Abram loved their tiny little town. They made great friends, and after some time of trying, Wendy was pregnant with another sweet baby boy. I had given a heads up to my doctor, to some of my friends, like, hey, I have a history of pretty bad postpartum depression, so if I disappear, come check on me. Like, make sure I'm okay. And I just, like, said that to a few people when I was pregnant because I was nervous. When I had Brody, I just felt really calm, like, really at peace. And I just strapped that baby to the front of me and we just did everything together. And it was so good. Wendy's best friend's husband was their family doctor. These two families were very close. They had family game nights and the kids would just run loose playing in the basement while the adults played games upstairs for hours. It was super fun, but I remember him like watching me and I just got the sense like he's he's like trying to tell like if I'm okay. He's doctoring me, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I I just were you okay at that point? It was good, yeah. But you said when you were pregnant, you were having depression, and then when you had him, you felt good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. After I had him, it was like this peace, this season of calm. Aw. That's about to end, though. <laughs> Usually does. Wendy's sweet baby got pneumonia when he was around six months old. So, of course, they have to go to the doctor and get a chest x-ray. But what the x-ray shows is surprising to Wendy and her doctor. Well... My doctor calls my husband and says, who's also like our best friend, right? But he wants to come talk to us about the results of the x-ray at our house. And so we're like, what? Like, does he have cancer? Like, what? what's going on? What did they find on the x-ray? So I'm like, so worried about my baby, like, is he super sick? Is he dying? And I don't know what to expect. And so he comes over and he sits down and he tells us that on the x-ray, they found that Brody had some broken ribs and that they were healing. So that was good. 
And I was like, okay. So that that's it though. Like they're broken, but they're healing and everything's fine. And so I'm like, well, that's a relief. Great. You want to stay and play a board game? You know, like hadn't really hit me what all this meant. And then I realized, oh, is this something that you're required to report to Child Protective Services? Did you ask that? Yeah. Oh, gosh. And I realized, like, there's the issue, right? So we don't know how it happened. He hasn't been out of our sight, but he's just, like, been with us. Remember, I strap him to my chest all the time because I've got three other kids. Yeah. And he does have, you know, a three-year-old brother that can be a little rough sometimes. And then he's been babysat by my doctor and his wife, (laughs) who by this point, he was probably our bishop too. You know, it's just like... Really? Like, nothing weird is going on. Yeah. You know? Of course, I asked my husband, looked him in the eye, did you hurt our kid? And he's like, no. And then he asked me the same thing. And I was like, no, right? Like, we legitimately do not know how it happened. You see, doctors are mandated reporters. He, by law, has to report them at this point. Not to mention the radiologist who also is required to report it. Once the radiologist made the report, then also my doctor made the report to CPS. And I know when he called them, he told them, like, I know this family. I know this baby. Like, I have spent so much time with this family, this baby in my home, like in their home, and there's not abuse going on. So I was grateful to know that even the person who was required to report it was saying like, this is the situation. I will stand by them. Time out. Throughout, like, my whole life, but especially, I guess, maybe my mothering life, like, my greatest fear has been of, like, getting CPS called on me. And I used to be afraid to verbalize that because I thought, if I tell someone I'm afraid of CPS, then they're going to assume that there's some reason why I should be afraid of them. Mm -hmm. Right? But it was just, like... This fear of like, I don't know, are they going to say my house is too dirty? I'm not doing good enough. You know, it's like this, that like mother guilt. I don't know. Yeah. I found out since that's a very common fear. Really? At least among women with postpartum depression. So here I was facing my biggest fear in life, right? Getting CPS called on me. I believe in what they do, and I think they are an important service. And I don't want that my my story to reflect something different than that. However, I do want to share what it feels like to be the parent with CPS coming in. You're suddenly thrown into the situation where you are guilty until proven innocent. Ugh. 
And the people walking into your house, not that they have the desire or the intent to, but they have the power to take your children away with them. That is heavy. That's terrifying. Very terrifying. I've never thought of that in that way. That someone could just come in my home and be like, sorry, I am taking your kids. And mm-hmm. you have nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I had a friend. Well, there were numerous people that I, you know, you know, in life where their children had been taken away from them. And in every case, as I got to know the situation or the people better, it became clear that at some point they were uncooperative. Like on some level, at some point, the parents were uncooperative in some way. And I really think, you know, 99% of CPS workers are awesome and no one has a goal to take children away from their parents. However, it happens. And I was terrified. So I decided I'm going to do everything I can to be as cooperative as possible and as honest as possible. So I just was like, (laughs) tried to be super open and super honest to the point where the police officer that was there that night when he talked to me another time, he's like, you're not a very good liar. And I don't think you could if you tried. (laughs) I was like, that's fine. Whatever. I'm trying to be exactly the opposite. I will tell you everything you want to know. Just let me keep my children. Yes. Yeah. So did they only come once? What does it look like when CPS comes into your home? Typically, you don't know they're coming because it was our best friend who called. He let us know like, hey, I called them today. They'll probably come to your house today. So we kind of had a heads up, which of course I was grateful for. The CPS worker and a police officer that showed up, they came, they asked some really basic questions, and then they asked to look around the house. So we showed them around the house. They wanted to see where all the children slept, their bedrooms. I think they're looking for basic things like, do your kids have beds? Mm -hmm. Then... After that, we sat in the living room and they asked some more specific questions, you know, about Brody's injury, if we had any idea what had happened, if there had been any time when he was especially fussy or inconsolable, which was totally no. He was always very consolable. I couldn't think of any time where I was like, oh, he wouldn't stop crying or no. CPS workers go to their kids' school to interview them as well. So then that's embarrassing to have CPS come and ask the secretary at your school in a town of 500 people. (laughs) I forgot you're still in that town. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So not only has a police car been parked outside my house the night before, but now they're interviewing my kids at the public school. She came over to the house right after she interviewed the kids and the kids were adorable and fine and honest, you know, but they ask questions that are like, what do you hate most about your mom? Or 
like what's the worst part of your family you know just like oh yeah. fishing for yeah those are horrible questions those are horrible questions i know right about like does your mom feed you does your like i was expecting questions oh, like that they asked those two or like um, what do you like about your mom <laughs> Or do you notice that your mom is struggling with some stuff? Not what do you hate about your mom? (laughs) Horrible questions. Okay, Um, so they came to your house the night of and then interviewed your kids. The next day. The next day. Uh And then that was it? Do you get like a note saying like, you passed? Well, that could have been it. She gave her report to her superior saying, the kids seem well-adjusted, happy, seem to feel safe. You know, everybody has a place to sleep. There's food. Phew. Wendy felt like, yay, we passed. We can bear our children again. But... The supervisor said, that's nice. However, this is a really serious injury. So they set up this thing where... And the caseworkers, like nobody, had had to do something this severe before but they had to make eye contact with every member of the family every single day for like 28 days or something holy crap so it was a solid month of cps checking in with us every Every. day oh my gosh every day yeah how did you handle that how did that make your depression go for you oh it was a trigger like remember how i said i was so calm and peaceful after Mm -hmm. brody was born well that was done that was over that was the end of that that was traumatic for our family that was a hard thing to go through did they ask about your mental health or have any of your medical records or anything like that or were you did you feel like you needed to hide that or were you honest about that they had asked if I had ever had thoughts of suicide in my life. And that was humiliating. I hated being asked that question. Like it mattered. Period. You know what I mean? I get it, but I felt violated. And I did answer truthfully. And then they asked me to sign a paper about a safety plan or I'd call somebody before I did something or it was like it made me want to vomit. It felt very intrusive. They don't know because they weren't there. But like you had just said before and even getting into the story, like you tell people. Come check on me. Yeah. So healthy. Thank you. So healthy. So to be asked like out of context, this super personal thing. And, and they then, don't know you. Ah. And then feel like it's being held against you. And then making you sign something where it's like, of course I'm going to do this. But why do I have to sign something for you? So the month ended and CPS never came back anymore for those eye contact checks. They officially passed. And Wendy had made it through her worst fear. Or so she thought, dot, dot, dot. We'll hear the rest of the story after this quick little break. 
The holidays are coming and we are celebrating by going back to the people we interviewed last season to see how life has been going since we went beyond their white picket fences. We're calling it the 25 Days of Updates. I'm so excited, you're not gonna wanna miss it. So join our free Facebook group where you can become part of the community and never miss an update. The link is in the show notes. I can't wait to see you in there. Now, back to the story. Life sent a lot of curveballs even after that for the Cordells. There was a life-threatening car accident that revealed Wendy was pregnant again. Abram had a job change which brought a move to Michigan. Wendy was eight months pregnant and had been in a neck brace for three months due to that car accident and was rebuilding her strength. We get to Michigan, don't know a soul, about to have a baby, you know, just putting my trust in the Lord and in my husband, (laughs) but it's going to be okay. And my depression starts getting really intense. If you think of it like a roller coaster, we all have highs and lows, right? And so sometimes you'll dip down into depression. And then usually when people come up, they kind of come up to where they're good. Mm -hmm. My counselor who I have now has told me a few times that she's noticed me at my highs, I'm still kind of like below the level of okay. So like when I'm doing good, it's like I'm only kind of depressed. And then when I'm doing bad, it's like I'm very severely depressed versus most people who experience depression like oh, I'm depressed and then now I'm okay and now I'm depressed. It's like, I don't get to that part where I'm But okay. do you feel like you're yourself when you're like on your, when you're at the peak of your roller coaster, even though it's still below the normal happiness line? Do you, cause you said you have it's, had moments where you feel like you're yourself again. Yeah, it's not, it's not that place where it's like, this is the person I recognize. Uh, doesn't usually get that still Mm-mm. i did this interview with wendy when i was discovering my own mental illness the surprise in my voice wasn't a judgment towards her it was more of like a worrying about my future how do we keep hope when life feels so hopeless for me that answer is still being discovered so here she is in a new place not knowing anyone and severely depressed again wendy ended up in the hospital a few times with high blood pressure and other pregnancy complications which was pretty typical for her pregnancies. The doctor had scheduled an induction two weeks before the due date. And with complicated pregnancies, you get to see the doctors a lot. I remember saying to the practitioner one day, I'm starting to have suicidal thoughts. And I think for me at this point in my life, like I had experienced that, I learned to express it. So it wasn't like terrifying in and of itself because I knew I need to say this out loud. It's not a judgment about me. It's something that's happening with me. And the right thing for me to do at that time was to talk to my medical providers about it. But you could tell she kind of panicked. And she's like, okay, let me go confer with so-and-so. And she comes back and she's like, we're going to schedule you to be delivered. You know, and she moved moved it up like another week or something. It was quite so in a weird way that kind of made me laugh and I was grateful to be like oh I found the ticket to get done with being pregnant (laughs) but it wasn't really a happy place to be in either so when I delivered in the hospital they gave me information for therapists that were specially trained to work with mothers 
that were postpartum and had just given birth. And so I ended up getting connected with one of the best therapists in the world, in my opinion. (laughs) She's literally saved my life in numerous ways. So I started with the therapist there in Michigan within a week of having my baby. Maybe he was a week and a half old when he came with me to my first appointment. I was able to get on some better medication because I had delivered some better medication for my depression. And definitely the suicidal thoughts did not ease up. That was something that continued for a while after he was born. And then, you know, life just continues on. You just... (laughs) You keep on trucking. I asked my husband yesterday, I'm like, we're finishing the podcast tomorrow. Like, if I could give one message, what do you think it should be? Like, what do you what do you think the takeaway is? And he said, just keep on trucking. (laughs) (laughs) Can you just speak for a second to the feeling of having a beautiful baby and a family and it seems like everything should be fine, but you still are feeling like you would rather not be a part of it? You can also say no to that question. (laughs) Well, it's hard to talk about. And I think that's why it's so important to talk about. It can be so terrifying and upsetting to be in that position. I mean, disturbing. Maybe it's like, why do I have the thought of throwing my baby down the stairs every time I walk by the stairs? Like... I don't think I really have to express what that feels like. I think you could imagine. Yeah. I remember after my second baby, one of my friends told me how she had these reoccurring thoughts. So those intrusive thoughts that kept coming and she kept thinking about stabbing her baby. And I think to someone who hasn't experienced it, that's hard to hear. It's also very hard to experience. But her being able to put that in words and say it to me, like it was kind of like one of those um, mentoring moments. Like, oh yeah, you're having a hard time. You're having these hard thoughts. I had that too. And this is what I thought about. And it just was this huge relief to be like, okay, this is the thing that happens. It's okay. It's not okay to act on this, but like I can get through dealing with this happening. Does that make sense? Yeah, total sense. Okay. So it can feel very isolating. It can feel very disappointing. It can feel very sad. I remember I described it as feeling like my fifth baby broke me. I just felt broken emotionally in so many ways. And I remember laying in bed with my husband one night and just saying, do you think we had one too many babies? And his answer surprised me. He said, yes, but what are we going to do about it? And it's like, (laughs) well, yeah, obviously we're not going to do something about it. Like, We love each one of them, but I was surprised that immediately he's like, yeah, it feels like maybe that's the case. (laughs) And you're like, dang it. (laughs) Thanks thanks for just (laughs) sticking that nail in the coffin. (laughs) But later I found out that that's 
a common thought that comes with postpartum depression. And then that was such a relief to think, oh, maybe we didn't make a bad choice. It was a bad experience to go through. And that's a normal emotional reaction to going through that hard thing. Yeah. So when people don't know that it's a thing that happens, you have that thought and then you have the thought, I'm the problem. I need to get rid of the problem. You know? Yeah. Like like you guys would all be better off without me instead of that thought of, okay, this is a thing that happens and how can we work through it? Right. Which is why it needs to be talked about. So instead of going to the place of, I need to die, I need to be gone so that everyone else can be happier, we can work to solve the actual chemical problem. Yeah. I think that's a good point. It complicates the situation so much when it turns into feelings of shame and guilt and it just multiplies things other than being able to objectively say, these are the thoughts in my brain. This is how I'm feeling. This is hard, you know, and kind of working through that in a place where you're not passing judgment. On yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Easily said. Hard to do. Luckily, Wendy had made some friends at church. That's one huge blessing in having a church community. Anywhere you move as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you always have a starting place where you can make friends. While the internal battle was raging inside of her, it looked like she was functioning just fine on the outside. About two months into being in Michigan, she had two friends from church come over. They came over one day and helped me to clean up and to get through some laundry. And I remember one of the women said that she's learned, like when someone's house is, I'm just paraphrasing, she was not rude at all. But like when someone's house is a disaster, like mine was, she said, I've learned there's always something else going on. There's always something else there. And at the time it was like, oh, wait, what do you mean? Like, this is interesting. And it's so true. And yet, so as just people, as women, as humans, as friends, we go into other people's houses, or maybe you get a peek into someone's house and you're like, oh my gosh, their house is trashed. Like their kids haven't picked up their toys in their whole lives. There's dishes still on the kitchen table and laundry in every room. Like what is wrong with those people? Well, guess what? A lot of times there's something wrong. Like there are struggles that are so hard and so deep that if you have the ability to stand there and judge, oh my gosh, then you have not been through those struggles. I'm the opposite. I go into someone's house and I'm like, wow, how is this house so clean? (laughs) (laughs) That baffles me. I remember the year that we lived in Raleigh, I wouldn't let anybody come to my house unless my house was picked up. And at that point, we had three kids. So, you know, it was a little bit harder to keep picked up. And we loved having people over for dinner to get to know them. But I wasn't inviting anybody over unless my house was clean. 
So we rarely interacted with friends or made good friends. I mean, I did make some good friends, but I consciously restricted those interactions because I didn't want to let people see my mess. And that was a lonely, lonely, hard year. And after that experience and realizing that's what I had done and recognizing how it made me feel and the lack of deep friendships that I usually made really easily, I decided I wasn't going to do that again. I decided that having people in my life was more important than them not seeing my mess. And so that changed something for me where I started letting people in and seeing like, oh yeah, this is how we live. That was a conscious decision. There's many days where it was really hard. Like, I don't want people to come over because I have laundry piled on the couch and I have piles on the kitchen counters and I don't want people to see that. But I would force myself. I can just think being with people is more important because that was important for my well-being as a person and my mental health and my happiness. Yes, I live by the saying, if you're coming to see me, come anytime. If you want to see my house, please make an appointment. I used to be so clean and honestly, my house was clean, but I was frustrated at my whole family. I never hung out with them because I was always cleaning. And you know, the cleaning really is never done. You will always find more to clean. The dishes will be there tomorrow. But that moment where my kids are cracking up together, hoping I'll sit with them and wrestle with them, that moment I will never get back. Sometimes I clean, and sometimes I don't, but I will always welcome a friend in, and whatever they think about my house is none of my business. Do I still call people to come and see when my house is actually clean? You bet I do. (laughs) I just try not to base my happiness on a clean home. Through my experience with my son's health, I let so many people in to my absolute worst, and I learned to let people help me. However, Wendy learned the hard way that... Not everybody is a safe person to do that with. (laughs) Renee Brown, have you heard of her? Absolutely. She's amazing. She talks a lot about vulnerability. And one of the things that I love that she talked about is helping other people. And that if we attach value to that in one way, You can't pretend that you haven't attached value to it in another way. So if you think I am a good person because I just went to Chelsea's house and I helped her fold her laundry. So I'm the hero. I'm the saint. I did service like good job me. I helped her. I'm the helper. Then there's also on the flip side This feeling of, well, what happens when someone comes to your house and then helps you with your laundry? It's like, well, I'm the loser or I'm the needy person because they're the helper. They're getting the, you know, service points and I'm just the receiver of that service. And so it's like, if you look at, you having value in 
doing for others, then it like diminishes your value when others do for you. And that is a very sad thing. And one of the things she says is that in order to form like connection, you need to be vulnerable, both people, both parties. And so if someone allows you to help them, that's a way of them being vulnerable to you. And it's been a while since I've listened to this talk of hers, but my takeaway of it, like how I internalized it was basically if someone won't let you help them, you do not want to be like intimately involved with that person. You do not want that person to be helping you because of how they look at that help. It's like, oh no, you can't come help me. I'm not going to let you come to my house when it's dirty because I will not be that person, you know? And so that's something that I've learned and that has definitely been underlined in my life. Yeah. People that won't allow me to help them. They're not on my short list of people that I'm going to call for for anything that requires vulnerability, like coming into my house. Interesting. Did you catch that? She just said letting someone into her house was vulnerable for her. She also was saying things like not everyone is safe. And at this point, I really started to get curious. I was talking to some friends and we were cleaning and one of them said, I wish that we could just all help each other clean our houses. And she had said this a couple of times. And so I'm the person that's like, okay, well, let's stop talking about it. Let's just make it happen. Like, that's your dream. Let's do it. So she had kind of inspired this thing. And I had friends helping me clean at the time. So I was like, let's start a cleaning club. And another one of our friends there had done this in somewhere else that she lived. And she explained like how they did it. And so we started this thing where it was a rotation every Wednesday. Every Wednesday morning, we started with a group of four. The cleaning co-op eventually expanded to about eight women. They rotated from house to house and became such good friends. One day we'd be scrubbing toilets. One day we'd be hanging pictures on the wall. One day, you know, we'd have all these different projects. And I did notice that some of my friends were more comfortable with like a decorating project or a let's go through these papers project or, you know, I have to do this craft thing for, you know, this handout I'm doing or get ready for a school party. And whenever they came to my house, I'm like, we're cleaning, you guys. <laughs> like, There's no other. <laughs> this is the cleaning club and we are cleaning. So in my mind, we weren't like doing a favor for somebody. We were all in it together on this equal playing field. And we're all giving and we're all taking. And it was just this awesome thing. And... I made some of my closest, best friends of my whole life in doing that. Throughout all of this, her mental health was still not in a good place, remember? Like her friend said, when someone's house is so messy, something more is always going on. And something more was going on for Wendy. I want you to imagine that you have a friend, an acquaintance, and they get this diagnosis of cancer. Have you had that happen to someone in your life? Yeah. And what what was it like? Did the people like 
rally and support this person and help. We all just took care of her. And my sister tried to make her feel beautiful because my sister's a cosmetologist and made her cute hats. And we all just like took care of her. Yeah. Because that's what you do. Yeah. That's what you do. And that's beautiful. I think in our world, something like cancer is something that we most people understand. I had a friend that's my age that got cancer probably 10 years ago or more now. And so she just had these two little boys and there was a calendar where someone was watching her kids in the morning and in the afternoon and people were bringing her dinner and no one ever questioned that. It wasn't like, do you think maybe we've made too many dinners for that family? Do you think she really needs someone to take the kids out of the house? What? Of course, this is not a question, right? It's easy to see those needs and just be like, you need this. And of course, I'm going to help where I can help. And everybody's going to help where they can help. Would you walk into a situation where someone has cancer, they're sick in bed, they're having treatments that make them feel terrible, their body is weak. Would you walk into that house and say, wow, Sally didn't put her dishes in the dishwasher today? Or look at how behind Sally is on her laundry. Or why is Sally asking for a babysitter? Why did Sally text us and say, can someone come be with me so I don't have to be alone with my kids? Would you judge that? Absolutely not. I feel like, I don't think it's just our church. I feel like there's a lot of churches and service groups where there's the idea of like, well, even the phrase, you know, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. And it's like, okay, we need to help people to be self-sufficient. And we need to help them to be able to take care of themselves. And we need to fix this problem. And while like self-reliance is important, sometimes you just need to love people. Would you walk into your friend Sally's house and life and say, okay, Sally, I know you're on medications. I know you're going to doctors and experts and specialists. And I also think we just need to figure out what else you need because you just have more needs than, I don't know. I can't think of the right words, but would you walk in there and try to fix her? Yeah, no. No, no. You don't walk in there and be like, okay, I think there might be some government agencies that could help you out because you've had this cancer thing for like nine months and it's not getting any better. Would you walk in there thinking you were some expert when you know this person is going to the experts? Like, no, it's not her fault that something isn't fixed and you're uncomfortable because it's not perfect, right? So I feel like that's the situation that happened to me where I was in a situation where I was really struggling and I was very open about that. And I was going to specialists. And I was on multiple medications and I was seeing my therapist every single week. And someone decided that 
I wasn't improving enough for her comfort level. Wait, what is happening? At this point, I was getting really curious. What was about to happen? What did she mean by that sentence? To understand, we fast forward to the summer a year and a half after that baby had been born, and Wendy's health was quickly declining. There was one day in particular where I just reached a breaking point, and I started having thoughts about hurting my children, and it was a lot of detail with suicidal thoughts. You know, there's this spectrum of, are you just thinking, I wish I were dead? Or even before that, like sometimes I think, I just want to drive away, just want to leave. And then like it can progress to, I want to leave this life, you know? And then it's more serious if you're like thinking about how you would do it. And then it's more serious if you're making a plan to do it, right? And so it's the same thing whether you're directing that towards yourself or towards another person. And so I wasn't making a plan, but I definitely was thinking of ways in a a lot of detail. And it was really intense. And I just stood up. I was giving my kids a bath at the time. And I stood up and walked out of the bathroom so that I could sit on my bed in my room and I could still hear them and see them but I wasn't next to them. And I just had to like de-escalate. It was not just like, oh, this thing happened. That literally felt like that experience broke something in me. It was like there was a part of me that just was no longer capable of functioning. And... I don't remember all the details of what I did, but I knew that I was at that point that day where it's like, okay, we're just going to survive. We're just going to make sure everybody's safe and everybody's okay until my husband gets home from work. It was like no longer dreams of like making dinner or doing a craft or whatever. It was just like, okay, we're going to be, we're going to make sure everybody's okay and everybody's safe. And that's our goal. And that's something my counselor taught me, you know, it's like you have good days where you can do X, Y, Z and you have kind of hard days where you need to lower your expectations. And if you have a really bad day, you just focus on like those immediate needs. So I knew I had an appointment the next day with my therapist. So I didn't call my therapist because I didn't think she would get me any or in any earlier than tomorrow morning anyway. But I did call my psychiatrist and said I needed like an emergency appointment and as soon as possible. And so they, it was, this was a Monday and they set my appointment for Thursday. So I felt like I was reaching out, doing what I needed to do. And then I was just kind of in this state of like, I couldn't think very clearly. Literally, it felt like my brain was not functioning at the level. And it functions on a typical day, right? And I just was like in this survival mode. I went to my therapist. She asked some follow-up questions and I answered honestly. Also, I really liked my therapist and I also cared what she thought about me. I didn't lie about anything. I didn't like 
hold something back per se, but I didn't like offer extra details. And I don't think I processed it that way at the time, but like looking back at the situation, because when I went to the psychiatrist on Thursday and she asked questions and then she asked a little bit different follow-up questions. And also in my mind, I'm in the situation talking to the doctor who prescribes my medication. So in my mind, I want to explain things as detailed and as accurate as possible so that I can be prescribed what I need, right? So it's kind of like I have a different goal. Am I talking through it and processing it? You know, my counselor says, okay, I think you're okay. Here's this emergency number. You can call me anytime. Do you think you're going to be okay? Okay. And then I get to the psychiatrist on Thursday. I answer all the questions. She asks a little bit different follow-up questions. And then she consults with another doctor in the practice. And they both come in to talk to me and tell me the psychiatrists were associated with a mental hospital that was all like on the same campus. And they said that there was an inpatient program for mothers and babies. And they thought that that would be a good fit for me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you want to hospitalize me in the mental hospital? Instead, I'm like, well, I think that maybe I just made it sound worse than it was. And they were like, like, absolutely not. And so I'm having a lot of emotions, kind of freaking out. And in the interim, when they're going to like work on things in the other room or see what appointment is available or talk about something, I call my therapist and miraculously she answered and I was able to talk to her for a minute. And I'm like, my psychiatrist wants to send me to the hospital. Like, what's going on? How how did you say I was fine on Tuesday? And they're saying, absolutely, you're not fine on Thursday. And so she was very professional, but you could tell she was like, wait, what's going on? You know, and she was a little bit, you know, don't just like send people to check in at the mental hospital for fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a question that stayed with me through this experience why I got those two different feedbacks, like what happened differently in those situations where I was, where they started with identical questions. How did they end? Well, not completely differently, but really very differently. The hospital there had a mother and baby program for postpartum mothers who had a baby within the last two years. They called it a partial hospitalization because it was like from eight to four it was about eight to four every day. It was intensive and it was all day, but you still went home for dinner with your family and you could be with your kids and then just come back the next day. So we did that, went to intake Friday morning and started the program on Monday. And I decided <sighs> this is hard. I handpicked just a couple of people to tell what was going on. Beginning, I just told two people. One was a girl that I knew 
people and I knew she was a wonderful person. We weren't like close friends, but I felt very strongly repeatedly that I should call her. And so I told her what was going on and she was amazing. And she babysat my kids every day that I was in the hospital so that Abram could continue to go to work and I could do this program and work on being okay. And she's very kind and did a very good job at making me feel safe. Like my information was safe with her and for sure my kids were safe with her. And I think I ended up telling five or six people that were like intimately involved in helping me. They knew what was going on, but it was kept in pretty strict confidence. We've always been really open with our kids and especially about mental health. You know, we just talk about it like it's not something to be ashamed of or not talked about. I also knew that some of my kids had pretty intense associations with the word hospital because of the car accident that half my family almost died in. We chose to not use the word hospital when we were talking to them. So I didn't tell them that I was being hospitalized. I didn't tell them that it was a mental institution, but they knew that I was going to kind of like classes where I could work on some stuff and learn some things. And they knew I had the wristband, you know, the patient ID wristband that you get at the hospital. And I would come home and tell them about what I learned and, you know, what we had talked about in group therapy. And so it wasn't like this huge secret, but it also isn't something that we've like shared all the complicated details about. So that's like one thing that's made me a little nervous about this podcast is like, I know they're super excited that I'm doing it. And I knew that I needed and wanted to include that part. And I knew it would be the first time that they like understood the whole picture. I had in the past like kind of fantasized about like I wish I could just go check myself into the mental hospital wing or you know and in my head in like my little escapist fantasy that would look like me in a hospital bed in a quiet room by myself sleeping as much as I wanted it was like that's what I pictured it would be like or should be like and that's what I wanted my escape to be just to be able to like sleep by myself and I think that's interesting that that's like I've heard other people say that too that they've thought like oh I wish I could just do that and yet you like have that wish when you don't even know what it actually is like yeah right? I'm so glad you're saying this because I've had that thought multiple times I've, yeah like I'd call my mom and say I think I need to go check in somewhere. But what's the mm-hmm. purpose of me feeling like that is, yeah, like my kids will leave me alone. I can sleep. People will bring me food. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's not what it's like? <laughs> well, it was wonderful. It was a lot of time where other people were taking care of my responsibilities. 
but there was a lot of emotional work to be done. What it was like schedule wise, you know, I get there at like 7.30 and during the day I would have an appointment with a psychiatrist. I would have like a individual appointment with a therapist and course like at the beginning there's more like check-ins and evaluations things like that when you get there every day you fill out like a really detailed survey mm-hmm. and it was really specific because it's only been 24 hours since you filled this out before unless it was the weekend right yeah and everybody's kind of in the same boat so it's asking like really specific questions did you have this thought how many times how intense are you feeling this Part of the benefit of this program is you're being so closely supervised that they can adjust your medication more quickly than you would responsibly do in another situation. So there would be appointments that were individual and a lot of the day was group therapy. And there was a nursery there. So people who had babies, I can't remember what the age cutoff was, but if you had like a baby, a nursing baby, they could stay in the nursery. And then this room was connected and there's windows and a door. So anybody could see their baby at any time, but they weren't having to care for them. They were there able to be able to be a part of this. So that's where our group therapy meeting was. And it was just like, I remember the lights were low and they had all these like glider rockers with ottomans. and But it also was like a cinder block room that had the same doors and windows as the prison I had worked in. Mm. And so that was very interesting because it's like, you're not locked in here, but kind of you are. (laughs) You you kind of have doors you can't go through without someone knowing who you are and what you're doing and giving you permission. So that was an interesting juxtaposition. But it felt like a really safe place and it, you know, at least on a basic level and being in there with mothers of young children, that was comfortable to me. I haven't had another experience. I don't know what it would be like otherwise. I don't want to make like a judgment call that way, but this is the experience I had and I was really grateful for it. And So we'd have like time where we would talk in therapy. We would have a class where all of us together group therapy again we would have lunch which there was like a cafeteria there in the hospital we could go get lunch at and and that was pretty much it I kept asking like how long is the program it's like well it depends what your needs are it depends and so they're usually they're like usually like two to three days or three to four days or something like that and I stayed for a week and a half. There's been a few experiences like that where it's like, it's not like I am trying to prove something or I want to compare myself to everybody, but it's this thing like mental health and struggles. It feels really unknown in a lot of ways. So sometimes I just want to know, like, am I making this up? Is this really not that bad? Like, and so when I've had those experiences where it's like, Oh yeah, I stayed two to three times longer than anybody else. It's a little bit validating of like, this is really hard. That is so true. With mental health, it's not a broken bone you can see. 
And especially in today's day and age when you should be able to read the right books and manifest greatness and choose to control your thoughts. Well, that really makes a person feel like garbage when they quote unquote fail at controlling their mind. This culture of self-help can sometimes be so damaging. How do you self-help a broken bone? How do you self-help cancer? How do you self-help mental illness? You don't. You go to a professional and allow others to help. Okay, back to Wendy's experience. They gave us a notebook with a bunch of information and, and I just, I really wanted to get the most I could out of this experience. And I took a lot of notes. And one of the things that I kept coming back to was, why did I have that different experience with my therapist versus the psychiatrist? And I realized that while I wasn't dishonest with my therapist, I wasn't like super open either. So I guess through those experiences, it just like in my mind, I connected the idea of the more honest I can be with myself and the more honest I can be with what I say, the better things are going to work out. And so that was part of my healing process was to try to be as honest and open as was appropriate or as I could be and not like to overshare, but just so, for example, when I asked for help with my kids, instead of just saying, hey, is someone available to babysit for a couple hours tomorrow? Or instead of saying, does someone want to come over and have a play date? I said, is someone available to come be with me so I don't have to be alone with my kids? Because that was me being the most honest with myself and the most honest with others. And people ask those questions all the time without saying the true meaning, you know? And I'm not going to pass judgment one way or the other. And hopefully people won't pass judgment on me one way or the other. Well, actually, unless it's good, then you can pass that judgment. (laughs) But for me, that was part of the, like, healing and learning and growing process is to be to become comfortable with the reality of the situations I found myself in and having other people be able to hear that right yeah so that was an intense experience and the thing that was said the very most in the hospital was ask for help get help. Have a support system. If you don't have a support system, here's some ideas of ways and places to create a support system and ask for help, ask for help, ask for help. And so here I am coming from this like religious and social background of, yeah, ask for help and be self-reliant and don't ask for too much help. Don't be that person, right? Yeah. Because there's value in being the helper. But here I am learning from the experts, ask for help. And it's like, I would ask them in different ways and at different times and ask my psychiatrist, like, how, how much, when do you know it's like too much? When do you stop asking for help? Like, what's, what's not okay to ask for help with? And it, the answer was always ask for help. Like, 
if you want someone else to hold your baby, ask someone to hold your baby. If you feel like you need help with dinner, ask for help with someone bringing dinner. Like it was just that. I mean, if there's one message that they were trying to give all of these women, it, that was it. Yeah. You, you can't ask for too much help. You can't ask for the wrong help and you need to ask for help, which that could be like a whole conversation in and of itself. Yeah. Cause I feel like all you can do is your best and asking for help. And that puts the accountability in someone else's court. Like if someone asks you for help and you don't have it in you to help them, then, then you have to say no. Like you get to ask for as much help as you want because you're not in charge of making sure that they're not overdoing it themselves. You're in charge of what you can do and I'm in charge of what I can do and I will help if I can, but I also have to set the boundary of when too much is too much from me, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? It's like what I want to scream from the rooftops. Like, like everyone needs to be in charge of what they can do. Yes. If you feel like someone is asking for too much help, it's because you're saying yes too much. All you have to do is set your own boundaries. Monitor your own needs. Yes. <laughs> Stay in your own lane, people. Like you do not need to fix somebody. You do not need to solve their problems. You do not need to be there every time they need help. And but if they you ask do, you and you can say yes and you want to say yes, then you should say yes. Great. And you know what? I would probably say yes more often if people came to me and said, can you be with me and my kids? Because I do not want to be alone with my kids. Rather than, can you take my kids? Like, how much more willing am I to help? Which is probably not good. But <laughs> I would way rather come sit with you and our kids can go off and play together and you and I just sit and be whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'd rather be in it together than have someone just drop their kids off to me. But if they were like, I'm about to kill my children. Can you take them for an hour? Of course, I'd say yes. Mm -hmm. So there's power in the vulnerability of saying what you really need. Because if I think someone just wants me to babysit so they can run to fries, sometimes I'm like, can't I just take your kids with you to fries? Like, But if they would tell me, like, I can't take my kid with me to fries because I'm going to die. <laughs> it's just like this weird balance of we should ask for everything that we need and we should only say yes to what we have to offer. I couldn't have summed it up better. That's so important. And one of my dearest friends in Michigan, she helped put this into words for me. And she just said to me, like, you go ahead and ask. And this was like before things even got intense. It was just like, hey, you're a person. I'm a person. Like, go ahead and ask whenever you need help. And if I can help you, I will. And if I can't, I'll just tell you no. And it like, don't stress about it. Like, it doesn't have to be a worry thing. It's just like, I know where I'm at. And if I can help, I can. And if I can't, sorry, but I'd love to help when I can. And that created such a safe place where I didn't have to like beat myself up to know, well, is it okay to ask for this? Or am I asking too much? Because I knew that she's okay. And that she was able to be like, Oh yeah, that would stress me out and make me have a bad day. So I'm just going to say no. But she knew that about herself. And so then we had this safe relationship. And if we could all treat each other like that, oh my goodness. It's like what you need is what you need and what someone else needs is what someone else needs. And who's in charge of monitoring all that? It's you. Mm -hmm. So if you need someone to watch your kids, 
or if you need someone to be with you, you ask someone and they say yes or no. And then you ask someone else and then you ask someone else until you find someone that that can fit into their needs. (laughs) (laughs) To their abilities. Yeah. We live in this society where we're so isolated from each other compared to like, we're not together making bread every morning. You know, we're not like doing all these things together. We have our individual houses and our individual things. And we, especially as women, need each other. We need each other. Ah, what an eye-opening conversation for me. How much more willing would you be to ask for help if you knew people will only say yes if they really mean it? Can we communicate this to each other? Consider this me telling you, I want to help where I can. And I will say no if I need to say no. But guess who is responsible for knowing when to say no? That would be me. Goodness, that conversation was a game changer for me. One of my favorite sentences that I use with my kids, but I need to start using with my friends. No, but I love you. So anyways, here we are. Wendy's mental health is on the mend and only a few select people know the full story. All the while, this cleaning club thing was still going on. So you were in the hospital, you got out, and then you were asking for help. And is this when you let the person into your life and the person shattered your trust? Yeah, this is where I just had like five or six people that knew where I had been and what had been going on. And those people were so kind and generous and they would invite my kids over for play dates. They would bring us dinner. They would take my dirty laundry and bring it back washed, dried and folded like things that feel embarrassing for me to say right now. And that's like a I'll save that for my therapist. (laughs) But people were doing so much for me. And that allowed me to put the little energy and functioning that I had directly into my family. And I made it a goal to look every family member in the eye every day and to connect with them and to make sure they were okay. When things were really intense, there was only a limited amount of time where I was like, okay, spending time with my people. Yeah. And so I made sure that during that time that we connected, that we ate dinner as a family. I didn't make that dinner. Bless the people who did. And that I made sure that my kids were okay emotionally and spiritually, and that they knew that I was there and that like we were okay. And so ironically, like, There's never been another time in my life where I felt more confident that every single one of them was okay, that their needs were met, that they were safe emotionally and physically. In a sense, we were good. And so to be in that situation, when you get a phone call from a CPS worker saying there was a complaint filed against you and need to come meet with you and I need to interview your kids. And I was just shocked. Can you imagine this? When your world is hanging on by a thread and then this. How sad. Here, she was finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Imagine you finally have hope. Then someone you let into your vulnerable space has now reported you to CPS. But who? It was so out of the blue. And I was thinking, who would have done this? It shattered my world. 
And not just a first call from CPS, a second call. <laughs> I know, like my worst fear in life. And here it is happening a second time. But then in that experiencing, realizing what a merciful God in heaven that he let us have that experience in Iowa so that we'd be strong enough for this one. So you knew what to expect? Because this one was so hard in such a different way. At first, Wendy figured it was maybe one of the elderly neighbors concerned her kids were walking to school alone eight houses down. Maybe it was because their kids had ran ahead of them alone for a few houses while trick-or-treating on Halloween. It had to have been a cranky random neighbor misunderstanding something, right? Wrong. When she came to our house and read us the complaint, there was something in there that referenced something that I shared with only six people. There was something that referenced something that happened at church. So is this like, you know, I'm just going through the process. Like I think the church one was first. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's someone from church. And then like the next piece comes, is that someone talking about the cleaning group? Like they said, a group from church has been helping her clean for over a year and there's been no improvement. And I was just like, what the hell? That was not this, we're going to fix Wendy. That was, we were all helping each other. So you're telling me if a group comes to my house once every six weeks that I should be improved? Mm -hmm. So first of all, that. Second of all, I talked to one of my friends who in this group who knew me much better and she laughed out loud. She was like, Wendy, your house is so much better. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, I know it's trash. It is so much better than it was a year ago. Every day it's better than it was a year ago. But this person just looking at like, oh, she still has trash on the floor. Oh my gosh, the toys aren't picked up. Because there's you new know. trash every day and there's new toys every day. Yeah. Someone brought you dinner and the dishes are on the counter from days ago. Oh my gosh. That was written in the report. Wow. It's so interesting because you have said things and I'm like, nobody thinks that. Like when you're like, you walk into someone's house and judge it. And I'm like, what is she talking about? Nobody does that. Somebody did it to you. That's why I you have, have these beliefs. I have proof. That's the other thing. I just worked with my therapist for like almost two years with this issue where I'm like, I have a hard time believing that my friends really want to be my friends. Like I have a hard time believing that people like me and that they're not just inviting me because they feel like they sh should. And so I had been working on that for years, right? Trying to like believe what people say, that they mean it. And so to have someone who's kind to my face and so helpful to turn and take those things and use them as what felt to me as a weapon was just like, I could hardly bear the betrayal. So it was narrowing everything down. And then yeah. what was in the report that stuck the nail in the coffin and you knew who it was? Well, it took me months to figure out who it was. I didn't know at first. And I'm only 99% sure I know who it is. It like makes me to laugh to think it could be someone else. It's either her or her husband. But you know what that feels like to go to church and know it's someone there in the room with you and not know who it is? And the amount of stress it is to have five kids and to think 
They need to be dressed perfectly. They need to be groomed perfectly. They need to be acting perfectly because people are here watching and judging. And that's why so many people leave. So many. I think there's a majority of people who aren't like that, but you can't convince me. Like when people are like, oh, people don't think that. You will never convince me of that because I know differently. Wow. But that's why I choose my people carefully. <laughs> that's why. I... That's why I get more specific when I say, you know, you could be my friend, <laughs> but do you pass the you won't call CPS line? <laughs> because that's where I drop the line. Because <laughs> if you call CPS on your brother and you call CPS on your friend that you've been helping, that's been honest with you, that's seen doctors, that's seen specialists, that's going to therapy every week. And is asking and, for help so that her kids are safe. Yes. That's the other thing. Like you were Someone still asked, meeting all of the needs. You were making sure that they were fed. No, you weren't making the food, but you still did what you needed to do to make sure they were fed. You were making sure that they had supervision. Maybe it wasn't you all the time, but you were providing all of the life necessities even if they weren't coming straight from you, you were making sure it was all getting covered. Like they were not yeah. in any danger. I was even taking two of my kids at the time to therapists of their own. Like <gasps> When I re-listened to this to edit it, the noises I was making were cracking me up. I literally couldn't handle or believe this story. I had to know more about the report and what was said. I'm not going to argue every point. And half of it was like, yeah, okay. That's true. And then the fourth of it is like, why is that a problem? And then like, that's your problem. That's not my problem. It showed her fear of my mental health. Like she brought up my mental health at least four or five times. And which I'm telling you, like, there's not anything more I could be doing. I am doing everything I can in all the right ways. So I'm sorry that you're scared. I know how it feels to hear those things for the first time and they're scary to hear. But you got to deal with that. That's your thing. And luckily, I had a CPS worker who read the report and right away. I mean, she told me on the phone because the first response was, I, it's sad that we live in a world where someone would call CPS rather than speak to the parent. Like, I'm right here. Yeah. I'm right here. Come talk to me. And so that's what I said to her. And she said, yeah, I agree. And then she said, when you read the report, you're going to be even more mad. And so she saw right away that it was kind of ridiculous. So the thing that narrowed it down even more was when I said in a text to just six people, can someone come please be? And it was like misquoted. Or maybe, maybe it was another conversation. Maybe I did say something more like this, but the way it was written in the report was, can someone come over right now? Or I don't know what I'll do to my kids or something. It was like something that I wouldn't, I didn't, that isn't what I said. That isn't what I said ever. To her, that's what she felt like I said. And that's valid. That's scary. So in some ways, I don't want to pass judgment on what she did. And I would really like to think She thought she was going to do something that would help. And she didn't understand the fear it would put in my children. She didn't understand the hurt it would cause my husband to feel like someone that knew us thought our children would potentially be better 
in another home, in another family. Yeah. And people will argue and say, oh, that's not what CPS does. But it's what they have the power to do. I know that's not their goal. It is still what they walk into your home and have the power to do, where you are guilty until proven innocent. So scary. We need to remind people to go talk and have adult conversations before calling someone who has the power to take your children away. Yes. There is so much to dissect here, and I don't even know where to begin. First, I want to talk about going to mental facilities. This can be such a taboo topic, especially in church culture. It almost feels like if that's your story, then you have failed. It's so important to rewrite that narrative. And I wanted to know if Wendy would recommend it and if it even really helped. 10 out of 10, I'd recommend it. And did it help? It changed my life. It saved me. It taught me things that anchor me. If needed, I would do it again without hesitation. I don't go around advocating for people (laughs) to like go and do that. It's something that I don't volunteer that information. I really am an open book in so many ways. And that is not one of the ways I'm super open about. But I'm willing to be because it was such a good experience for me. It was needed. Connecting with those women at that time was powerful. I know that like when you're in group therapy, that's a safe place and you don't go share people's stories because it's just not your business. That's just not okay. But as my story, I would like to say that I got the courage to say out loud that I was scared of someone calling CPS. And this is after CPS has been called on me in Iowa when my kid was fine and we didn't know what happened, but it was serious enough to cause some alarm. But before one of my friends called on me, but I got brave enough to say it out loud because there's this fear of if I say this, people will think, why are you afraid of that? What's wrong with you? What are you doing to your kids? What does your house look like? Like, why, why in the world would you be afraid of that? Every single woman in that room said, I have no fear. I have no fear. Like, I am afraid of CPS being called on me. Like, I've had those thoughts, except for the one person in there who had worked as a CPS worker. And then she had other things to deal with, you know, because she had done a very, needed and hard job. But that was so helpful for me and helped me to be brave and to be able to talk about those feelings and fears without being afraid that I'm the only person that feels that way. And without being afraid that people are going to automatically look at me and think, what's wrong with you that you're afraid of that? I mean, it helped with that being able to connect with these women who had such a similar experience. I honestly haven't taken a poll. I don't know if that's just a common feeling among people who have depression or if that's a common feeling among people who have children, but it's not rare. And for those people to tell me days on end, ask for help, get help, 
don't be afraid of asking for help. Ask for help again. Ask for more help. Ask for all the help. That was life-changing. And it just solidified to me that it is my job to ask for help. Of course, I'm going to do what I can. That is who I am. I am always going to try and do what I can, except for maybe like asking my kid to go get me something from downstairs. (laughs) I don't always do that one. That's just character building. (laughs) I think I have some really deep, hard struggles. And it's important for me and my well-being to feel safe to ask for help. And you said it perfectly before. It's something like I want to shout from the rooftops. Our responsibility as a helpful, understanding friend is to love people. I think that's what Christ does. I think that's what we see. I look to Jesus Christ as an example. And when I think about how he interacted with people on earth, he loved them. Did he always intervene? No. Did he always lecture? No. Did he always physically help with something? No. But he always loved. And so my job trying to be, not trying, but just like, I love people. I love having friends. I love being social. Of course I want to help. I think that's how a lot of us feel. But my job as a helper is to have boundaries and to help when I can. And if I'm starting to feel resentful, overwhelmed, either with my own life or with someone else's problems, I just have to just have to figure out what I'm okay with and what I can do and be okay with not being able to do everything and be okay with everybody having their own journey. I remember one time I was teaching in this group of women and I was teaching about kind of a related topic, how sometimes we feel broken and life is hard and we need each other and Christ heals us and we become stronger and more beautiful than if we had never broken when we can heal, right? I think that's a beautiful lesson regardless of your religion. It's like part of the human process, right? And there was a woman in there and she raised her hand and she was like visiting and she talked about how she was currently homeless and just like these heartbreaking struggles. And I just told her what was in my heart. I said, I want to help you. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, what can I do for her? You know? Do I have a bed? Do I know somebody? Can I loan money? Like, is there a resource? Like, that's all the natural things that I'm thinking. And I didn't realize how true it was until I said it out loud. But I said, I want to help you, but I can't. I don't have a way to help you right now, but I can love you. And it made that point so clear to me. We can always love. We can always love somebody. And we need to stop trying to figure out why people are broken or doing things wrong or whatever, whatever issues we see people have. And sometimes when you're like in an environment where you're serving people, it's easy to talk about like what people need and what help they've asked for and how many times they've asked for help. Or it's like, oh, we should do this for this person. And then somebody says, I've done that for them five years in a row. And If we all just didn't worry about the extent of others' needs and we just love them and do what we can when we can, even if you can't love them, at least just 
be kind, leave them alone. It's interesting to me because you learned to ask for help and then you got burned by asking for help. So how do you let yourself still ask for help? That's a really good question. One, I have a therapist that I love and I'm grateful to be in a position where she knows me well and she knows my struggles well. So we can talk about things that are really deep, hurts that are deep, you know, experiences. And she knows I don't have to like backstory because we've lived the backstory together once a week for five years, you know, but how can we still ask for help when you've been burned? One is like, it was almost kind of a joke, but not really, but kind of, it was like how I dealt with the intensity of the emotion is like when one of my friends showed up to support me right when I was in the middle of that, you know, another friend calling CPS on us and I didn't know who it was. And I didn't think it was this person that was coming over, but I didn't know. And just like before I let her cross the threshold of my house, I asked her, if you are worried about me or my children, will you promise me that you will talk to me before you call CPS? Right? I'm not asking somebody to not have a problem or to not be afraid or to see what they see, but talk to me first, right? Kind of just that idea of like, do you promise you won't call CPS on me? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like this flat out, like don't ever for any reason, but like, I'm right here. I love connecting with people. I love talking to people. I also have a lot of information that can be very overwhelming to people. And so I don't just you know, shoot people with a fire hose. Like, I'm not going to tell you everything if you don't ask me, right? But all you have to do is ask. It all boils down to self-awareness and boundaries. Wendy's boundary is now, before you come into my home, we have the CPS discussion. Without the backstory, I used to giggle when she said that. I don't laugh anymore. That's not just a clever thing to say. That's straight up a beautifully placed boundary. Honestly, it also has changed me to where I now will pay for more help. And we're thankfully in a position where that's a possibility, at least on occasion. I have someone bringing me clean laundry, a dollar a pound to have it washed, dried and delivered to my house. And I'm like, this is amazing. You know, it's like super affordable and super big help. Whereas before I was in a position where that wasn't an option. And someone was doing that out of the kindness of their heart. And it was amazing. I am so appreciative. And this experience caused my husband and I to be much more willing to spend our money to receive services because that's a value to us. It's something that blesses our home. It's something that brings peace to me and to our home. And it's valuable to the functioning of our family. Wendy's family moved the summer following that experience, and there was no way their group of friends would be asked to help them move. We were very careful about who we let in the house. And, you know, it's still a process. When there's trauma, some people, like if you don't really understand trauma, it's easy to be like, you need to stop complaining about it. Like you talk about it all the time. Like, can you just get over it? You know, something like that. And That's not how trauma works. That's not how our brain works. We don't get to decide what is traumatizing to us. We don't get to pick that. 
And so like I have physical and emotional reactions to things like if my child is on a video call and I know there's like laundry in the background of the video call, I lose it. You know, if my kid's trying to do like a film for class and you can see stuff in the background that isn't perfect, I'm like, no, that's not okay. And that's like a physical reaction of like, I have to protect myself. Right. Yeah, and it's not like a, I care what people think about me. It's like a, we need to make sure that you don't get taken away from me. That's the reaction. I love how she said, we don't get to choose what is dramatic to us. That is so true. It's crazy how my husband and I were in the same room when our son coded, and my husband seems to have healed from it, while I still have flashbacks when I hear monitors in the hospital. My mental illness was triggered, and I've been a hot mess ever since. How could we have experienced the exact same moment and had two different outcomes? It's because trauma is when you experience something faster than your brain can process it, and each brain is different. So why do we even quantify trauma? We can't. We just can't. So whatever is traumatic to you and cause those instant fight or flight reactions, that is valid for you. Maybe we don't need to judge those reactions. We just need to be aware of them. And that's the emotional work that needs to happen. And, you know, some people might think that that sounds silly to call it work, but it can be hard and it takes a lot of practice. And to be able to sit with your feelings and to recognize how am I feeling? How is my body reacting? What's triggering this emotion? Or recognizing what triggered you in the first place or what it means for you to be triggered. It's a lot of work. Ugh, work. (laughs) Why does everything have to be so much work? Sometimes I feel overwhelmed. Like, holy moly, there is so much internal work to be done. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, don't forget to give yourself breaks from the work too. If you are in a place where you want to start doing some of this internal work, I recommend EMDR therapy. Wendy has also done some of this therapy before. It helped her recognize her emotions. It also helped me to recognize how my body responds to those emotions. It also trained me to be able to feel very intense emotions and to recognize it and to calm down. Not in a way that's forcing it away, but in a way no. you're, feel, you're feeling through it. Yeah. Yes. It's so important. And the thing that is so interesting to me about that is that that process taught me how to feel the Holy Ghost in a better way. And it taught me how to communicate with Heavenly Father in a way unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I just love when I see aspects of life be connected, it's not like believe in Christ or go to therapy. It's like believe in Christ and go to therapy and Christ is going to help you through therapy and therapy is going to help you with Christ and, or, you know, whatever those things are that anchor you in life. Mm -hmm. And that's such a beautiful thing to me. I had someone say like holistic, like it's all connected. And so for those who don't believe in Christ, it's an intuition or a, instead of saying the Holy Ghost, I'm learning like the best way after each interview, it's either connecting what people who are religious say, the Holy Ghost. And then the other people say like this internal guide, this internal voice that guides you yes. what you need. And I'm like, holy crap, this is all the same. Like this yes. is 
all the same answer. We need to find our inner guide and listen to it. And honestly, I don't mind what anybody calls it. Me too. (laughs) We are so connected. We have so much more as humans in common with each other than differences. I don't think it matters our religious beliefs, our political beliefs. I mean, well, experience can affect us. I tend to gravitate towards empathetic people who've experienced real, really hard life because that feels like a safer place for me. But there's so much we share in common. And I use my religious vocabulary because that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I believe in that and I connect in that and that fills me and other people find fulfillment in other ways. And that's awesome. And I want to know about it and I want to talk about it and I love it. And I don't really think it's different. Whatever no. you want to call it is based off of your experiences, but I'm realizing it's all so aligned together. Yeah. I really so think beautiful. our emotions and our physical brain and that like spiritual piece of us, it's all connected. Yeah. And the the more it connects, just the more life makes sense and the more deep our connections can be with other people. And it's really a very satisfying thing. It is. And it's so interesting because the stories that I'm hearing and the stories that people are telling are so sad, but beauty just resounds every time. Beauty from ashes. Yes. So how does life go on after all of that? For Wendy, she found forgiveness a beautiful way. Throughout all of these experiences, Wendy felt a constant pressing thought to write all of it out. Hopefully one day she'll turn it into a book and we'll have a discount code for you for that. But... Even if it doesn't turn into something, the healing that came through writing was very profound. I don't have like a specific recollection, but I know from the beginning, I always had it in my heart to be forgiving and understanding. So even if I don't know who this is, I know it's one of my friends. I know it's one of my people. I know it's someone that I genuinely, deeply love and respect. And so maybe that's like, the starting point of helping me to have that courage to just seek forgiveness. I also knew I wasn't going to find peace while I was angry. And so it was something that I prayed about, that I thought about, that I write about, that I talked about therapy. And I feel like, not to say I'm amazing, but I feel like something that I have a skill at is to be able to see things from another person's perspective. like. That's something that's helped me in my relationship with my husband. Like when I'm really angry about something, I stop and think, what, like, what's his side of this? How would it feel to be the person at work who has so much stuff that they feel like they can't come home? And the wife and kids keep calling and saying, come on, you know, whatever the situation. It's like, okay, what does this like feel like from, from a different experience? Man, I can picture somebody being like, If I don't call CPS and then when she's on the news after driving her minivan in the Great Lakes, like I'm going to feel like I didn't do something I should, right? I don't want to mess with someone's conscience. Like you got to do what you feel like you got to do. So there's like that out. Like, okay, I don't agree with you, but I can see that motivating somebody. I also think if you're raised by a parent who works in, you know, like as a social worker, 
and helping people, then you see that perspective of like, hey, I know CPS can connect people with resources that will help them. While that's true, unfortunately, CPS connects people who don't have a support system with resources that can help them. Those aren't resources that help someone, whatever. I'm not going to go into that. So I could see someone coming from that perspective. So right there, there's like two really genuine, like, maybe someone's just trying to help. The most impactful moment for forgiving her actually happened before the CPS call, when Wendy's inner voice kept prompting her to help this woman. The woman had experienced tremendous loss when going through the loss of a stillborn baby. Wendy didn't exactly know where this relationship stood, yet she kept getting a strong impression to reach out to her. I just can't even imagine. Like, heartache and, you know, I had reached out a little bit, but of course, in the middle of that grief, like, she didn't respond to everything. I don't know how much later it was, but it was later. And I, you know, had found out after the fact that they had had a little private ceremony and had buried their baby in the cemetery, just like with them and their children. And I just had this feeling of like, you should go see that baby. Like you should call her and you guys should go visit that grave. And I was super uncomfortable. Like I was like, that's weird. Like, I don't even know what kind of friends we are. I was hesitant about it. I had to think it a lot of times before I said anything. And then like one day in the hall of church, I just was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Cause I need to stop like just thinking about it. So I said something to her and, you know, she was caught off guard. She's like, okay, well, we just went and left flowers a little while ago, but, you know, it was kind of like, I don't know why you'd want to do it, but here's where it is. And we can do that sometime. And so I was like, okay. And then it was like enough of a relief and awkward enough that it just, we just never talked about it. Right. But at least I said to her, like, this is how I feel. So later months go by. And then this whole someone called CPS thing happened. And then one day I'm standing in my kitchen and I'm just thinking, why did I feel so strongly about that? Like if it wasn't going to happen and she didn't want to do it, why did I feel so strongly about it? And now I'm thinking back on that experience and being like, I think this is the person who called. And you know, then I'm just thinking, why did I feel so strongly about that? And I like stopped and pictured in my mind, what would that have looked like if we had gone and stood there at her child's grave? What would that have felt like? What would have happened? What would be said? And in that moment, just feeling that grief, picturing that experience in my mind, just thinking about the unimaginable pain that I would feel if that were my baby and how much I love this friend. And I just like in that moment, I just felt like Heavenly Father loves her too. And she does not struggle with the same things that I struggle with or in the same way. They do not present the same way, but that doesn't mean that she has not had tremendous burdens of her own. And so in that place, I felt like it was God giving me space to give her grace. I don't understand it. 
I've given her multiple opportunities to try to explain it to me or to be willing to admit that it's her. I would be more than happy to have a conversation and to try to understand what happened. And she really is one of my favorite people. But that doesn't change the fact that like, if I see her face on Facebook, I get a physical reaction. Or the fact that I can't imagine letting her come in my house ever. Right? Like there's there's some things from that trauma I can forgive her, but it, the trauma isn't totally healed. Yeah. Does that can, make sense? Yeah. You can forgive someone and still have boundaries and mm-hmm. still protect yourself, you know? But that forgiving, I think, is more for the person who forgives than for the other person because it lets allows you peace in your life again. Yeah. So I think that's what helped me through it knowing it's what I needed to do for myself and for my family. And because like I said, she's, she was one of those like few people that I picked someone I loved and trusted and respected. And, you know, I've learned things since like she was one that wouldn't let us into her house unless it was like, Oh, my house is perfect. And I have a craft like very, very much like, Oh no, we don't accept other people's help. And now that I know what I know, those are red flags to me. Whereas at the time, I didn't know that. Well, she is past the CPS situation. Depression is something you don't just get past. Wendy still deals with depression. And I ask, what is her advice for people who struggle similarly with mental illness? Well, it doesn't last forever. The intensity doesn't last forever. And not everybody has depression as bad as I do. I remember reading Silent Souls Weeping and like her description of depression and how she felt. I was just like, yes, yes, I understand you. You understand me. This is amazing. And then she says, little did I know, a year later, I'd feel better. And I I feel like I literally threw the book across the kitchen. I was just like, one year You have no idea. No idea. Because one year sucks, but one year's nothing. Nothing. It just keeps stretching out and going. Yeah, for a lifetime. Yeah, so what do you do? What are you going to do? You get a good therapist, a really good therapist. You don't be afraid of medications. You get a good psychiatrist i just have to go back to the medicine thing because this is like fresh for me Mm -hmm. because mental health isn't as taboo as it used to be people are very vocal about it and it's almost like trendy now so it feels like i don't want to jump on like now it's not a joke now it's like a trend Mm -hmm. and like am i just being part of the trend or like do i really need this but it's super easy to tell someone else you should get on medicine if you need it, but there's still that stigma for yourself. I wanted to do everything else. I wanted to check my hormones. I want to check my mm-hmm. vitamins. And I fought medicine for so long. And I do still have that feeling of like, it's just for now. I could get off. Maybe you will. <laughs> and maybe that will be wonderful for you. But if not, that's and wonderful I would, too. I would be happy for you. I have very strong feelings about medication. Yes. And they are positive feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it so hard to get yourself on medication? Is it a pride thing? Yeah. I just answered that without even thinking about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And I think it's a little bit like 
because I can't see it, it's not a broken arm, right? Mm -hmm. Like, am I just being crazy? Am I just not being strong enough to control my thoughts? Mm -hmm. Maybe I just need to pray more. Or maybe I just need to... Control my own mind. Mm -hmm. But it's like when I'm on the medication, it's like I have a bad thought and then I'm like, oh, what a weird thought. But when I'm off the medication, it's like, oh my gosh, this thought is eating me and now I'm going to go cry on the floor like a baby. (laughs) Curled up in fetal position, just trying to get through the day. Yeah. Is that how you want to spend all your energy? (sighs) Do you have all that energy? You know, I think if you can handle depression in natural, non-medicine ways, that's awesome. Good for you. I also want to say other things that probably won't feel very nice. Like, you don't know what actual depression is, <laughs> and yours clearly isn't that bad. Like, not everybody is in a place where they are capable of doing those things. Like, getting a yoga mat out every day and, like, getting a downward dog. Some people are not in a position where they can even do something that simple. Yeah. And we put so much pressure on ourselves. It's hard. I have a new friend who's very, very pro-holistic, you know, non-medicine. And so I've been biting my tongue a lot in the last couple months, and I feel like it might just all come back out right now. I have had people on here who do the holistic way, and that works for them. And I think it's good to show the other side too, because I think different things work for different people. And that's the point. Mm -hmm. I probably really could fix my chemical imbalance with a nutritionist and exercise and blah, blah, blah. But like, also I'm a mom and I'm running a podcast and I'm Mm -hmm. working Mm part-time and I don't have a professional chef to cook for me and I don't have the energy Mm -hmm. to research all of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, if I could take a pill in a day, that's going to help me like move forward is very helpful it is and i feel like for a large part and now i can actually do the yoga that i want to do because i'm not curled up on the floor crying isn't that amazing yes yes you take the medicine (laughs) and then you can do all those healthy awesome things for yourself (laughs) okay so after everything that you have been through what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence First of all and foremost, I wish for all of us to be able to stop judging beyond anybody's white picket fence. And I want us to stop thinking it's a noble thing to fix someone else's problems. And I guess ultimately... Like the people that I let in past my white picket fence just love me. I'm doing the best I can. And some days that looks a lot different from other days. But if you're willing to come in, I will love you. And we can connect and we can be real. That's it. Like we don't need to judge each other. We don't need to point fingers at each other. There's space to forgive people, even if they betray you in a way that you cannot wrap your mind around. And no matter what you've been through, there are people who have experienced things that you don't yet understand. 
So just be open to consider what might that person be going through? You know, like if you see a picture on Facebook of someone who's taking bad care of their dog, you looked up, literally this happened. People looked over the fence, someone took a picture and then Facebook was in an uproar. And I saw those pictures and I was like, somebody's struggling. Somebody needs to go help. You can tell there's kids that live there and somebody's overwhelmed and at their limit. And how about instead of saying, how dare you own a dog? Why don't you say, are you okay? How are you doing? How can I help you? Right? If we could just approach each other with love and a willingness to try to understand. And I guess really, if someone has a problem with me, if it's not important, I don't need to know about it. But if it is, just come talk to me. I'll tell you anything you need to know. This has been another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. If you have a story to share or you know someone that does, please reach out to me on my website, Facebook, or Instagram. The link for all these things should be in the show notes. Will, they will be in the show notes. I'm going to put them there for you. And as always, be kind, because you never know what's going on beyond the picket fence.